had the opportunity to read it at Shriner University. But also the speaker for today is the same speaker who spoke at Shriner University's inauguration. That's Charlie McCormick. Privileged to be able to invite him to come and share his thoughts with us this morning. Our eldership is excited and encouraged by him doing so. Not as the president of a university, but as a fellow ragamuffin. Not for the advancement of a university's dreams, but for the advancement of the Lord's kingdom and its dreams. You're in for a treat. Not only will you find his message interesting, and it will be that, but I trust you will find it inspiring, I have. I'm grateful to be blessed to share him with Shriner, but even more to share him with you. But first, let me give you the context of the scripture. When any of us stand on the brink of transition from what's familiar to what's unfamiliar, it's usually unsettling. Israel experienced that anxiousness as they stood on the brink of entering a land God named Land of Promise. Now many in Israel, rather than being filled with excitement, however, were filled with fear. All the while, God was hoping they'd be filled with faith. Now to ease their fears, God sends out 12 scouts to survey the land and bring back a report of what they could expect. A few of the scouts saw circumstances marked with hope and promise, and others no, the majority looked at the same circumstances and saw nothing but threats of danger and despair. Our text this morning challenges us to look inside ourselves and to ask, how do we see this land of promise that's before us as a church? Or maybe even more importantly, who do you see in this future before us? Hear the word of the Lord. After 40 days of exploration... The scouts of Moses had been sent out and returned from their tour. They made their report to Moses and Aaron and all the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they showed the fruit they had brought with them. This is the report. We arrived in the land you sent us to see, and indeed it is a magnificent country. A land flowing with milk and honey. Here's some of the fruit that we've brought as proof. But you need to know... The people living there are powerful. And the cities are fortified and they're very large. And what's more, we saw the Anakim giants there. The Amalekites, they live in the south. In the hill country are the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites. Down along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River Valley are the Canaanites. But, Caleb reassured the people as they stood before Moses. Let's go up and possess this land for we are able to conquer it. Not against people as strong as they are, the other spies said. They would crush us. So the majority report of the spies was negative. They went on to say the land is full of warriors. People are powerfully built. We saw some Anakim there, the descendants of that ancient race of giants. And we felt like grasshoppers before them. They were so tall. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down on the ground. And two of the spies, Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, they ripped their clothes. And they said to the people, it is a wonderful country ahead, and the Lord loves us. He will bring us safely into the land and give it to us. It's very fertile. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of these people. For they are but bread for us to eat. The Lord is with us. 
He's removed from them his protection. So, do not be afraid. Charlie. So I'm honored to be in front of you today to share a message related to this most important day in the life of the Kerrville Church of Christ at this most auspicious time of year, the Christmas season. Jimmy asked me to provide these comments as he, as he suggested to you uh, after hearing them in their first iteration at my inauguration just a few weeks ago. And I would do just about anything for Jimmy, but I'll admit to feeling just a little hesitation about this request. Now, as some of you know, by training and inclination, I'm an analyst of culture. And specifically, I've been trained as an anthropologist and a folklorist. So I absolutely make no claims to being a theologian of any sort, nor do I feel confident uh, to make theological claims. So bear with me today, and I ask for all of your uh, grace and forgiveness in abundance as I talk to you from my perspective and expertise, and not the perspective of um, the theologians, the biblical spot, the scholars, the ragamuffins, um, as Jimmy calls them, who typically stand where I'm standing today. But hesitating though I am, I feel a special sense of awe to be delivering this message when these new shepherds join our existing shepherds to lead our congregation into the future. As we move into the Christmas season, itself a time of expectation, it's good and appropriate that we commission these men to usher us into our new tomorrow and help us prepare for this experience. Theirs will be a heavy and often invisible burden, but they have elected to bear it on our behalf because of their deep love for and commitment to this church, and they all have my deep respect for this decision. So some of you are thinking, what in the world does a folklorist do anyway? And that's a very fair question. It's also difficult to answer with a pithy response. One of my former faculty and mentors always said that folklorists study the human activities that make us more than a race of spectators. More than a race of spectators. I like that because one of the assumptions built into that phrase is the notion that we humans have the ability to act intentionally we don't need to simply be blown about by forces outside our control. So, for example, folklore study traditional tales that don't seem to go away, whether they're legends or myths or folk tales or jump rope rhymes. We ask, why do people keep passing these stories along year after year and from generation to generation? The assumption of folklorist isn't that we simply like to keep things the same. The assumption of folklorists is that these stories matter, often in ways that are not immediately apparent, and because humans prefer to actively live in their world and not exist as a race of spectators. Now, I would suggest to you that much of our Christian faith, similarly, is certainly surrendering to God, but also to living an abundant life in this world. Our lives matter, and because we matter, what we say and what we do matters. And if we do and say the right things, future generations can matter more easily. So for my inauguration talk, I decided to turn to the folklore's bread and butter, the folktale 
as inspiration for my brief comments and jimmy suggested to me that their comments appropriate for the events of today too but there are so many wonderful folk tales to choose from it's it's hard to choose just one or identify which is most emblematic of this installation of new shepherds in this christmas season what i decided on for my inauguration hansel and gretel is an unconventional choice no doubt but i think an appropriate selection for that event and this event too first a little context the first time hansel and gretel appeared in print was when wilhelm grimm published it in the 1810 unpublished manuscript that we call the olenberg manuscript now this wasn't discovered in fact until the 1920s in a monastery in alsace france it had been tucked away back in, in some archives. And reading that, 100 years more from the time it was published, we realize, of course, that the Grimm's took significant liberties with their treatment of this tale in uh, later published accounts, altered it quite a bit from the time they first documented it. But we also see that Hansel and Gretel remains a story with ancient themes, but also a story very relevant to our contemporary world. A brief synopsis of the story goes like this. A woodcutter, his wife, and two children lived in the forest and ran out of food due to a famine sweeping the countryside. The wife insisted the children be abandoned in the forest so that there would be fewer mouths to feed. The children heard the plan, and Hansel collected white rocks and, and he scattered them on the path into the forest, and they reflected the light of the moon and led the children back home. The parents hatch the plan a second time, and this time, Hansel crumbs his bread behind him, leaving the children a trail to follow once they are abandoned in the forest. Alas, the birds eat the trail of crumbs this time, and the children can't find their way home. Instead, they stumble into a most spectacular house made of breads and cakes and candies and sugar. Starving, they begin to eat the house until its owner in some versions of the story, described as a witch, stops them, captures them, and begins to fatten them up so that she can cook them. Hansel tricks the witch into thinking he's losing weight rather than by gaining it, thereby delaying her intentions to eat him. And Gretel tricks the witch into um, climbing into the oven where the fires consume her. Hansel and Gretel have saved themselves, and they return home triumphant with the witch's jewels and gold. So some of you are saying, well, well, that's an awful story, a gruesome even. What in the world does that story have to do with the installation of New Shepherds, and why would you ever want to share that at your inauguration? Fair enough. But on a very fundamental level, this is a story about what happens next and how to live into tomorrow. And these are issues that we should have in front of our minds as all of these events, New Shepherds, and the beginning of the Christmas season, conspire to create in us an expectant waiting. This is a moment in which we ask ourselves, how do we live into the future that God is calling us to, and not just let that future wash over us? Now, to be sure, the future is on the move, becoming less distant every moment, and we act on that reality in order to create the future we desire. Dealing with what comes next is at the heart of Hensel and Gretel's tale. The father in the story illustrate how one lives into the future by doing nothing. The father lets the future engulf him. 
he doesn't want to abandon his children in the forests but he has no alternative proposal as to how the family will survive and even if we don't admire the father in this story i think we can understand his paralysis he is so terrified of facing an unscripted future that he chooses the path of choosing no path even though it means he will lose what he loves the mother in the story unlike the father actively tries to live into the future she thinks about the difficulty of surviving with all those mouths to feed and to be fair mothers and stepmothers never get very generous treatment in these folk tales but the mother in Hansel and Gretel seems particularly foul she unwisely determines that the only way to survive into the future is to eliminate the extra mouths and stomachs of the children. The mother imagines her survival instead of the family's thriving as the best strategy for living into the future. And I note here that in almost all versions of this folktale, the mother doesn't live to the end of the story. She's died or gone away by the time the children return home. The message seems to be that focusing simply on survival never achieves the goal of actually surviving. And though we like to think of Hansel as the hero of this story, his approach to living into the future is just as flawed as his parents. He presents as a classic trickster figure who fools the mother and father by leaving rocks and breadcrumbs along the path in order to retrace his steps back home. But it's the very place that threatens his long-term viability. That home he's trying to get back to is toxic. Those parents are trying to kill him. Perpetuating the status quo has a powerful seduction. And we typically buy into that old adage that the devil we know is better than the devil we do not know. But that is a foolish way, a foolish way to live into the future. Now, I probably shouldn't say this during church, but I'll admit that I almost always find the witch to be one of the most interesting characters in these folktales. She is always a typically complex figure that we too quickly make a one-dimensional caricature out of. And in fact, if we look at the character closely enough, we'll almost always find echoes of ourselves in her. And perhaps that is exactly why she terrifies us so much. In Hansel and Gretel, for example, if we step back for a moment, we can perhaps appreciate her concern about these unknown children showing up and literally consuming, that is destroying her home. And I suspect that if any of us were in the same situation, our response to these urchins would be swift and radical too. But she's so focused on resolving the present crisis, her house being consumed, that she doesn't see the tragic future she's creating by her focus on the present. So often we forsake the future by an obsessive focus on the right now. Right now is always becoming future, and we get ahead of it only by looking up and out towards what comes next. And then there's Gretel. In many ways, she's the most insignificant character in the story, but I like that Gretel. By all the conventional standards, she should be the least likely hero of all the characters. She's not strong. She's not endowed with special wisdom or powers, and I'm sure someone has read this tale and said, well, she's just a girl, for goodness sakes. Now, since I have daughters, I know that the logic of that position is just foolish. But still, Gretel's really not all that special. Interestingly, these are the same descriptions that have been used to characterize a lot of Christian activities through the ages. By all conventional standards, Christians 
we should have been wiped out a long time ago. Candidly, we're never going to get a Marvel superhero designed around what we consider our power. Forgiveness? The world says, are you kidding? Just another name for weakness. Love? No thanks. Give me power and dominance. These are the things that will win the day. Sur sacrifice and surrender? Ha! All that will get you is a handful of nothing. But Christians, like Gretel, do the work day by day, week by week, year by year, faithfully and prayerfully willing and working our way into a hopeful future. Gretel, like her father, she loves her family. She doesn't ultimately want to be separated from them, so she takes action to bring this hopeful future into reality. Like her mother, she understands the danger under which they're all living, but it is her intention to thrive and not just survive. Like Hansel, she wants to go back home, but she intends to not just go back and perpetuate the past into the future. And like the witch, she's concerned about the present crisis, but she doesn't focus so intently on the present crisis that she misses the future implications of solving this crisis. I like that Gretel. Gretel comes back from the woods with news of the human condition. She tells us, you are unwise if you trust people. The best plans will come undone. The forest is dark and dangerous. It is full of people who will do you harm. You will lose your way. The chances of survival are slim. You are likely to be fattened up and eaten by a witch. But Gretel reminds us, there's this too. Things turn around now and then. Sometimes things go your way. What happens next might be better than you expect. There is hope, always hope. Now, some of you haven't been on to Shriners campus, and if you haven't, please do so. Uh, you'll be my guest. I'll give you the grand tour. When you do, you'll notice, I hope, the sign that's been carved into stone on our front entrance. It reads, enter with hope. We believe that fostering hope is central to our educational enterprise. The Kerrville Church of Christ has the same message to greet people here at our church an empty cross. Now, to be fair, it's an entirely counterintuitive symbol of hope. It was designed, after all, as an instrument of torture and destruction, but from Isaiah to Revelation, God tells us in his holy word, I am making all things new. I don't know if this is God's playful side, but he seems to love taking symbols of pain and grief and insignificance and turning them into symbols of hope cross, the empty tomb. How in the world did God make these into images of a bright and eternal future? Behold, I am making all things new. In this Christmas season, God asks us to be hopeful again. This time, he tells us as he's told his people for 2,000 years, see the possibility of my goodness and not what the world tells you to see. See the possibility in an humble manger. 
two thousand years ago galilee and judea were being besieged externally by rome and internally by people like herod and to the people living in those times it must have felt like the world had turned upside down it's probably unsurprising then that a new messiah seemed to pop up every week and people flocked to them as their purported savior these were men of power and influence men who could save the day and drive out the disease that seemed to have infected the whole world power privilege might force these were the hallmarks of the regular messianic uprisings during this time but god decided to teach us once again about hope and in luke 2 we read these words in those days caesar augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire roman world and everyone went to their own town to register so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth and Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for a baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no room for him at the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terrified, but the angel said, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, he is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. And so they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. In this season, we look expectantly to the manger. It's the silliest place in the world to look for salvation, unless you have hope. As Christians, hopeful is how we face the world. And I would suggest that the history of the world retold in the story of Hansel and Gretel confirms that the Christian way of living into the world and the future is ultimately the only satisfactory way of living into the future. I think about poor Joshua and Caleb from the biblical passage Jimmy just read, trying to convince Moses and Aaron to ignore the war warnings of the other scouts and to be hopeful enough to take action and thereby create the future that they all believed they should live, but they were scared to embrace. Yes, there are giants and beasts and danger abounds, but it's the promised land. He will make all things new. 
enter with hope. Go. And perhaps we have one more time, or time for one more tale that's beloved by folklorists on this subject. Some of you may remember that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in his 1964 acceptance of the Nobel Peace Prize talked about, of all things, how to face sirens. That the sirens were those mythical creatures that sang so sweetly that sailors could not resist steering toward their island. Ships were lured upon the rocks at the song and men forgot home and duty and honor as they flung themselves into the sea and to their deaths. We first experienced the sirens in the Odyssey. And this is Homer's ancient tale of Odysseus and his men's travel home after fighting the Trojan War. The journey home takes 10 years. It's filled with terrible encounters and trials. And one of the most memorable of these is when Odysseus faces the sirens. Odysseus faced them by filling his men's ears with wax and lashing himself to the mast so that though he heard the song, he would be unable to respond to it. It was torturous for him and his men heard nothing. We encounter the sirens once more in classical literature. This time it's Jason and the Argonauts who must face them. They're on their way to collect the golden fleece and they must sail within earshot of the sirens. But they have brought Orpheus, the musician and poet, along with them. And they're saved from the sirens because as soon as the siren song begins, Orpheus begins to sing a more beautiful song. And the men focus fully on the song of Orpheus. What a great joy and honor it is to be counted among people, Christians, who sing a more beautiful song. It is a song of hope. It tells the world that there is good news, that God has come among us as Jesus Christ has sacrificed himself on our behalf and has risen from the grave. In doing so, he gives us hope for living into the future. He promises that our expectant waiting will be rewarded. All of these stories, both historical, sacred, mythical, tell us about our possibility as followers of Christ. And we pray for these new shepherds, that they serve as our Joshua and Caleb, our Orpheus, our Gretel, and they help us keep our attention fixed on our hopeful future. I look forward to walking alongside them and with all of you as we keep heading that way.